This episode was recorded on the stolen lands of the Wondry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to pay respect to First Nation peoples listening in today. We recognise First Nation peoples' deep connection to country, water, culture and language and the ongoing intergenerational trauma caused by colonisation. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to Loud I Grew Not Sorry for the second part of, uh, I don't know what we're going to call this, so we'll just call it abortion part two. Welcome back, Madison. Thank you. My co-host, <laughs> author of the upcoming book, Tissue and host or co-host of Tender? Co-producer. I co-produce it with um, Beth Atkinson Quinton, who is a brilliant, brilliant producer through the Broadwave Network. And yeah, I, I'm no longer the storyteller, which is awesome. I've handed over the reins. We focus on another survivor, victim survivor story. It's great. So yeah, co-producer. Cool. I love that for you. <laughs> so jumping straight back in, this episode, we're going to be looking more at the political systems and the structures behind access. We're going to start off just talking about mostly Roe v. Wade and sort of what happened in America and around the ERA. And then we go to an interview with my lawyer, Jackie Daytona, who's going to step us through how laws are made and how they're passed and precedents and all of that kind of stuff, how that all works, because I'm not a lawyer. Mm, I mean, I think it's important to understand the system that you're trying to dismantle. Mm, mm -hmm, I mean, I totally agree with, I think it was Audre Lorde that said you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Yes. I absolutely agree with. Yes. But also, like, there's no harm in hitting the master with his own hammer. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, Um, look, I'm all for it. Or, like, if you know how the master built his house... Mm. weak parts are so that's where you put the dynamite there's something really fun about knowing the rules of the game and then how to undermine them it's like the ultimate cheat because there's cheat codes everywhere yeah we're gonna mother load this (laughs) (laughs) oh i love that so many people will know exactly what you mean and so many people will be like what what and to them i say mushy mushy yeah. Yes, but oh my goodness, mother load, 50K in the bank, let's go. Um, so when people think about access to abortion, people usually think immediately of Roe v. Wade, which is an American legal decision Uh that said that a person had a constitutional protected right to privacy and that would in turn protect a person's right to abortion. The outcome of Roe v. Wade was decided in January 22nd, 1973. So the day after my birthday, nine years before I was born. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I, it's my birthday on Saturday, so everyone should get me a present. Oh, I <laughs> um, love that. Does that make you a Capricorn or? Uh, an, an Aquarian on the cusp of Capricorn. Well, that's powerful. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know what this means, but whenever I say that, people are just like, oh, I get it. Yeah, like, yeah. I've got like a, a Sagittarian moon or something. Ooh, there's, okay. there's quite a bit of Sagittarian stuff in there as well. You're which, a go-getter. Again, yeah. And then, yeah, when my friend who was doing my star chart was just like, oh, of course, of course, you're a Sagittarian rising or something. Oh, I love oh, yeah. it. That's what? so fun. <laughs> it's really cute. I'm like, this makes no sense. Also, I'm obsessed and I love this. Like, yeah, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. So for most of the 70s, mm-hmm. abortion was not a hotly contested or divisive argument. A lot of this would come from a social context and lack of conversation. And like it was mostly viewed as this moral choice argument, like, you know, between you and your doctor or something along those lines. Yeah. A general society poll, which is something that I found online, and I don't know if this is a good poll or not, 
1977 showed that 39% of Republicans and 35% of Democrats said abortion should be allowed, yes. demonstrating that this was not like a left versus right. It wasn't it, at all. No, no. It, was, it, was, it was very different back then. So do you know who Phyllis Shafley is? I do know who Phyllis Shafley yeah, is. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Such an annoying person. Yeah, Phyllis Shafley hated women. Margaret Thatcher would have probably really looked up to her. Yeah, <laughs> they kind of had a similar look. Got so, yeah, same vibe. They do, they do. But no, she was she was kicking off around that period. That was her time. So pre ERA, she was really struggling to actually make a wave in the political scene. Her husband was a politician, yes. um, and she just kept going for things and kept getting knocked back. wonder why that was. What do you think I, yeah, was? I don't know. I don't know. I think it was probably because she was a bit of an asshole. Well, I think that she was experiencing well. sexism. Maybe, From what yeah. I've read and what I understand, incredibly intelligent woman. Very yes. smart. She was very, very well read, very intelligent. I have this real, you know, deep down gut feeling that she thought that to win the game was to hate women and she wasn't wrong it was a real failure of a lot of women at that time and even some feminists who thought that in order to gain equality you had to mimic men equality meant to have the rights that men had but when you look at that systemically all you're gaining is the right to oppress people yeah and men don't really have the rights that they think they have either like they've still got to play the game they've still got to participate in capitalism and patriarchy in order to maintain their their position so that's what we were fighting for and some of the women who are against um, the Equal Rights Amendment sort of argued that well, you're fighting for the right to work, so you're just going to be a mother and have a full-time job, but didn't go any further, like didn't inspect that any deeper to be like, well, should men be doing more work? Because obviously that wasn't the social structure. Yeah. But it's interesting that they they realise that, and that is what's happened, like predominantly women taking on that, that unpaid care labour on top of full-time work, that second shift. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they, you know, they're not always wrong, but also oh. th- their answer to that was not, let's look at this systemically. Their answer to that was like, no, women should be allowed to work. There's a clean knowingness of <laughs> the oppression that exists. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's quite fascinating to see which parties. Yeah. Are- and recognizing that as an oppression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And recognising it as an oppression worth overturning as opposed to just acknowledging as, again, the natural order of things. Yeah. It's a, like a failure to look critically or to have any kind of imagination of what the world could look like. Yeah. I really like that you mentioned the right to privacy, how it's long linked arms with abortion law. And there's a reporter for The New Yorker who had actually had, had done similar, had, had sort of uh, been able to retrace those similar polls per se, because people were really about the right to privacy when it came through in the 70s. People were really into it. And many American courts and legislatures had recognised the right in the form of to be let alone. That was the, the quote, to be let alone and protected from incursions in their private affairs. So privacy at that period of time had been extolled as, as necessary something that each of us were entitled to to live free prospering lives and it was actually the bedrock of what permitted same-sex relationships legally yeah but one thing that i find really fascinating about the right to privacy was and silk gerson for the new yorker does report this really well 
In the decades after Roe, she writes, this is a direct quote, many feminists argued that privacy had long offered a cover for the subordination and abuse of women in the home and in marriage. Mm-hmm. So it's a really unsurprising drawback. And again, it's that double-edged sword of when you offer the right to privacy, whose privacy matters more? And who are we protecting? Yeah. And you can see that kind of the nature of the, of the movement of the right to privacy. You can see the other end of it through the Me Too movement, which really tried to argue that privacy as as Suk Jerson says, privacy shields men's conduct. It's not a Band-Aid or a utopia. Yeah, I suppose there has to be consent to privacy as well. Yeah. If this is something that has happened to me or to my body or to myself, hmm. like there's two people involved in that. Yeah, the encroachment on one's privacy. Exactly. You don't have the right in your private space to encroach on another person's privacy. That's not how it works. It doesn't cancel itself out, which is really, yeah, where it becomes quite murky. But also very obvious to me, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I would say in this case, no, you don't actually. (laughs) I I like that you mentioned that when we view, view abortion discourse politically, we're thinking Roe v. Wade. And I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade and in the, in how we understand and privacy is really interesting because we're dealing with other privacy concerns now. We're dealing with the tracking of period acts. Yeah. We're dealing with technological privacy that in um, the future for us, which showcases the wounds of our grandmother's era, we have an IP address this time. It's technological yeah. warfare. So the right to privacy debate, I'm waiting for it to kick up again in a very new way, politically and legally. It's going to be It's going to be big. Yeah. The internet makes privacy a kind of fallacy, you know? Yeah. And there's a level of respect yeah. as well yeah. that, that is that is really missing. I think what's also interesting when we talk about the right to privacy and, you know, and in, in the context of Me Too, those defamation laws as well oh, yeah. and how they get weaponised against people speaking out about their abuse. Yes. Um, I remember arcing up about this. I was a law school dropout, obviously. Um, <laughs> And I was at law school around the time that Me Too first started kicking off. And I'd also just started publishing with Vice. Ironically, my second piece at where I essentially outed an abuser. This was just before Me Too. The reception was wildly different. My life would have been very different if I'd done it within the Me Too context. Oh, you're um, very brave. Amazing. Thank you. That, it was hard. I, I, yeah. I think it was difficult, but the tides were definitely turning. But this was just yeah. Just before the big the big moment. But I, exactly that point you made about defamation, I remember getting so frustrated because the laws, sure, let's say a man was defamed. Sure, let's entertain that for a second. Yes. Let's say there was a false allegation. Let's play the game and say that. We, you and I both know how rare that is. There are laws in place to restore justice in that instance. Yep. But the laws in place to restore justice when it comes to sexual assault or any sort of abuse, are very, very, very flawed and don't really exist. So I found that really frustrating. It's so incredibly frustrating. Working as a a mental health nurse, day in, day out, stories of, you know, abuse and rape, and the victim survivor would be triggered because they'd see a post on Facebook or something of their abuser getting engaged and getting married and getting on with their life, but they're an inpatient in a mental health facility. Mm-hmm. because they've not gotten past that trauma. Um, they're still terrified. They can't have relationship. They've got a disordered relationship with food. Yes. Like all of these things that happen to us as yeah. victim survivors and the abuser is, is shielded by the law. Yes, spot it's, on. It's not a system that was built for us. No, not at all. It's fascinating that right to privacy it sits as a double-edged sword globally, mm. um, legal and political context. It's almost as if, 
the political system was never designed <laughs> to, to protect or support or empower women or victim survivors. Yeah, it's, it's almost yeah, very it's obvious. Crazy, it's crazy. But anyway, nipping back to Shafley, she's a perfect example of how the conservative movement use and weaponize women when these women are of use to them, and then they just discard them as as soon after. Bettina Ardent is a good example in Australia. Yes, as, as someone who wrote Men to. Disgusting human. She really went there. Oh, she she went all the way there, and then got you know the Order of Australia or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, the Julie Bishops of the world, the the Michaelia Cashes, those kind of people. Even the um the Watchers woman, the the Cartier Watchers woman. What's her name again? Start of the pandemic, she gave everyone Cartier watches, and Scott Morrison blasted her for it. Oh, I can't remember her name. Anyway, she's another good example of how <laughs> whatever her name is. She's a great example of how she will be used by the system. So she would have been like propped up as like a powerful woman CEO. We have women in leadership. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as something goes wrong, she's a scapegoat. As soon as Scott Morrison needs someone, she's a scapegoat. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really sad because I'm so in two minds about these kinds of women because part of me wants to interrogate why I hate them so much more, I think, than the men in those positions. And that it feels sexist. It feels innately sexist to hate they them. They feel like traitors. But they feel like traitors. Exactly. Yeah. There's this element, I, I think, there of, of a real, you kind of want to grab them by the shoulders and be like, you know, you've got to know, especially the women like Shafley, who were in all ways incredibly intelligent women. And it was, was discriminated against because of her gender. Imagine if she'd used that power for good instead of evil. It's a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it's a missed opportunity for everyone. Like, I'm proving had an incredibly yeah. empowering career. She didn't have to be like, abortion is good. She could have mm. been like, we have the right to, to self determination. Yeah. She didn't have to yeah. go and get one. Yeah. And yeah. she was also a massive hypocrite, like so many of these conservative women are, preaching a woman's places in the home. Meanwhile, she's out campaigning, writing articles. Who's looking after her children? Her maid, obviously. Her maid, who's probably a woman of colour. That's the irony of someone still had to do the mothering of Phyllis Shafley's children. Yeah. Um, I and- wonder if they're okay. But that's. Oh, yeah. Speaking of scapegoats and the system using these kind of archetypes to undermine problems. Progress, um, essentially. Did you ever see all of the exposés on Jane Rowe's baby? She did end up having this baby because the law wasn't passed at that time, but hence why she sued. Oh, mm. no. And they, there's a documentary that looks fascinating that I'd really love to see, and it's all about Jane Rowe because she's the ultimate scapegoat. She was, from memory, a working-class lesbian woman who ended up getting saved by the church because they wanted to use her against herself, and she was desperate and she needed to be used against herself. And from memory, they actually paid her off so she ended up becoming anti-abortion and years later i remember that she she was honest about the truth behind that and who paid for that and who sponsored that content per se but they did try to make a scapegoat again recently with all of this stuff out of her child and i just think that is so incredibly unfair it's the extension of control beyond oh it's just awful it's as absolutely wild, especially when we go back to the first episode when we're talking about how they're saying that abortion is going to be so detrimental to our mental health. Yeah. It just makes a mockery of everything that they're trying to say. Doesn't it? I didn't even think of that. It makes, mm. by showing the child as traumatised, you know, aren't you just arguing? It's head spins. It's just it's head spins. spins. It's like, well, yeah. then maybe she should have had, I don't know. It's, maybe you should have let her have an abortion if she's so awful thing to say about an alive human being. That's exactly how they get us. They make us. She's, she's turned into like 
like, you know, like a, a spectacle. Totally. It's a, a, a spectacle where it's it, they don't actually... They don't care. They don't care about her as a person. They care about her as the fetus. Yeah. They actually care more about a fetus than they do that living person, obviously. Yeah. I wonder that, if it would have been different if she was a man. I, I really wonder if she would have been less scapegoated. If she would have turned into Beethoven. <laughs> Maybe she became the leader of the pro-choice movement. That would be incredible. Yeah. Well, I have a good friend who who says that, like, my mother had me, but I would have liked that she had a choice not to. Yes. I love I think that is the most compassionate, beautiful take on motherhood. I I really love that. Yeah. I I mean, abortion is a fork in the road. It's not. Anyway, let's continue. Shafely. Oh, I don't really want to talk about her anymore. Fair. Fair. Like, really... Like she was quite instrumental in um, mobilizing the church. Yes. And really created that what we now know as a wedge issue as abortion being like a moral issue and so hotly contested and so full of shame. So full of shame. Yeah. Yeah. I think what was interesting too was that it kicked off in that era. I don't think there was any organized pro-life movement, at least in the context of the American context, before the 60s or 70s. I th- from memory, I think it was a little bit later. I would say it would have started, I don't know, because I haven't actually researched that, but I would I would say that it started around the same time as Stop ERA. Yes. Or come yes. out of that, which was, I feel like it was mm. early to mid-70s. Yeah, absolutely. I think ERA was defeated in 77. Mm. It, it was a response. It wasn't, it tried to claim to be larger and more organised than what it really was, but it was, it was a response. Yeah. There were so many other elements to that era of abortion legislation coincided with Time magazine releasing the first ever photograph of the baby in utero. So then the pro-life movement went, this is the first time in history that we can construct or curate an image of life itself. Mm. And they would literally do that, trigger warning, grotesque, but they would actually arrange parts of flesh and cells and tissue to make it look like a dead baby and photograph it and hand out zines essentially in pamphlets at university rallies. It was this, the start of this era of photography and being able to see inside the womb. But every time I see an ultrasound, I'm always a bit like, ooh, the history here is really <laughs> Manipulative strategy. Yeah. Are you okay, sir? And isn't that ironic? They're dehumanizing women and pregnant people by humanizing the fetus. And they're doing that by playing into how human it is to see blood and carnal tissue and feel weird and bad and sad. So it's this yeah. vicious cycle of humanization and confusion. <sighs> but yes, the pro-life movement were not organized. They did not exist prior to abortion being legally considered properly and controlling reproductive choices being put in the legal and political limelight is actually what caused the retaliation. Given that this episode is about political and legal dimensions of, of abortion, it we are in such an interesting era right now mm. in terms of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the technological advancements and also social, presumed social advancements, but it's a bit murky. I write an essay in the book about temporality and our view of time and history. And there is this dangerous assumption that history heals all wounds, and it really doesn't. It really right. doesn't. Um, Especially when we refuse to acknowledge our histories. Yeah. And yeah. how, you know, we're talking about colonization and mm-hmm. white people's roles in colonization, even passively. Like even today, well, I didn't do it. I didn't kill anyone, but I'm still benefiting as a white person from stolen land. Completely. Passively profiting. I remember watching some videos of pro-lifers during the early Roe v. Wade era, so the 70s, and they would say in, in not wanting black women to get abortions, they were 
wanting to not contribute to black genocide. How ironic is that? It's just to use the autonomy of the black pregnant person against them when they actively are standing on the shoulders of people that have actively caused the genocide of black babies. It's just absolutely insane to me. I just can't understand it. Using it as a fear tactic when it already exists as a scary enough thing. Yeah. Controlling our own reproduction and our reproductive labour is central to feminist liberation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I've said it before, but abortion is about so much more than a choice yeah. or the right to have a baby or not to have a baby. It, it's about bodily autonomy and self-determination and being yeah. seen as a whole person and not just a walking womb. Yeah, absolutely. And that that stuff about sterilisation and legality and, and reproductive access. I've got a really interesting little fact. Oh, yeah. Uh, Marie Stopes. Do we know much about Marie Stopes, the actual woman? No, not personally, no. Oh, this is what All right, cool. Lay it on me. Marie Stopes, who is the woman, the abortion provider, the the largest abortion provider in the world, MSI Australia, is named after, was a eugenicist. So she was a turbo Darwinist ranter. She did do a lot of reproductive choices of white women. It's always just for white women, isn't it? (laughs) But she did so while being vehemently against interracial marriage. And she actually, and I quote, said, and this is really triggering, so please beware the hopelessly she was insistent that the hopelessly rotten and racially diseased be sterilized Um, so that's why marie strobes international msi changed its name to msi reproductive choices in a bid to sever its connection to marie strobes herself they could have separated themselves further than using her initials i know yeah they really should have done that shocking white supremacism is long linked arms with all forms of reproductive access. I was really excited for like a feel-good story then. I know. I'm (laughs) sorry. That was really bad. Just like, oh, by the way, MSI, quite shocking. And it's it's a funny one. I guess Phyllis got me thinking about Marie Stokes. Mm. And you wonder why Indigenous and Black women and and like people of colour just don't trust white people. Right? I don't know where that could come from. I know. Even someone like Marie Stobes, when they, when she dangles the like fight to reproductive agency in front of your face, there's still that huge and, and toxic barrier there. It's yeah. yeah, I mean, Churchwell said it too, white domination can only be maintained by white reproduction. So that's why that people were scared of white women not having babies. Yeah. Yeah, it's just an another form of um of genocide. And integration. Yeah. yeah. The Ku Klux Klan in parade one year in 1922 in Louisiana hauled large banners that actually read abortionists beware because they were so anti-abortion because they wanted white women to keep having babies. More white babies. It meant more white power. Apologies about that. Not on behalf of Marie Stokes. I mean, you know, knowledge is power. Yeah. It's the heart of pro-choice rhetoric that I, th- I believe you and I really share as viewed through the lens of commitment to a kind of choice that is not coerced, is not assumed, and is not projected. Like a real pure kind of choice. Yeah. It actually makes me sad that people will choose not to have babies because they're not in a, a strong enough financial position. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were a forced birther looking at that situation, why on earth would you go and shame that woman? Right. As opposed to being like, right, we should raise the rate of unemployment payments. Yep. We should raise welfare. We should have more public housing. Healthcare should be universal. They never do that. They shame the pregnant person. Isn't that the most devastatingly sad truth of it the is. matter? That nuance, it's, mm. yeah, that's really important. When you say to a disabled person, you can't have a child because of your disability, why? why? Mm. What's yeah. stopping them? Why yeah. is there not community? Why is there not support? Why is there not networks in place? 
Yep. Why do we not have services supporting people? And it all comes back to capitalism and patriarchy and who we want to reproduce versus who we don't want to reproduce. It's abhorrent. Yeah, it's patronising. And how we imagine our ability to make choices as well. And I think in the context of sexuality, because we are talking about sex, all the time here we're talking about sex, that can get a little bit lost. But mm. choice and sex in a gendered world is a very, very interesting thing to consider. Mm. Many markers of our life is our choice slowly taken away from us in certain sexual dynamics or even understandings about what it is to be a sexual person if you happen to have a vagina. So I think that when you punish a pregnant person for making a choice that you don't agree with, you're ignoring how many times that their choice set was overrided and made deliberately murky, that they they might not even know what they want at the end of all of that because of how fucking difficult it is to <laughs> to prioritize your own wants and needs in a world where sex and gender is oppressive mm. it's interesting Oof, i don't like it mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think- this is this might be a nice little question for you leah how did you feel when roe v wade was overturned um do you remember where you were oh i would have just been in my house <laughs> yeah yeah mm, how did i feel shocked but also not shocked that's exactly it. That's that is it. I felt like I braced myself almost. Yeah. It, yeah. it was just like, of course they did. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, of course that happened. Yeah. I have been saying for a little while that like the rights that we have, we don't have. I mean, in Australia, the religious freedom bill that almost passed would have eradicated already what we think we have. It's an illusion of progress that that we've worked towards. The right to vote and no one to vote for. Yeah. The right to work, but that's for 25% less than men. Yeah. And, you know, taking on the majority of the reproductive and the care labour. Mm-hmm. You know, the the right to abortion, but reduced access. Yes. I mean, our our rights, in inverted commas, are like on a tenderhook. Completely. Yeah. So rights are not rights. I love that. That's exactly how yeah. it is. It's a dangling carrot. It's mm-hmm. It's something to just hush-hush. While the men get on with business. Absolutely. Those kind of reforms that actually don't change systems. Yes. It's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I appreciate that you answered that with shocked but not shocked. Yeah. Because that is the undercurrent that I think a lot of people that don't experience the oppressions that AFAB people largely experience are probably just shocked. Hey. Yeah. There's this undercurrent of knowingness that our rights can just be snatched out from underneath us at any moment and we've been taught that. moment we left the womb yeah yeah it's fascinating yeah i was more annoyed by the the protest that happened afterwards don't get me wrong i love a rally i love a yell in the streets yeah there were no demands there, no. Were, there was no rally cry it was like oh this is in support of what's happening in america, in america. without acknowledging what's happening here yeah um Can we go into that abortion in australia yeah, so in Australia, abortion is, is determined state by state and it's not constitutionally protected, mm-hmm. whereas we are unlikely to have our laws overturned, which we will get into with the lawyer. There can be so many barriers to access depending on your socioeconomic situation and your location. Mm-hmm. For now, I've, I have retained a lawyer, Jackie Daytona, and we'll go into the interview with them now. Thank you, Jackie Daytona, for joining us to discuss the legal issues around abortion. Are you able to step us through the Menonite decision? Yeah, sure. Did I say that right? Um, well, Menonite, Men- Menonite, like it's it's a strange thing. Sounds we, like a precious rock. <laughs> us law talking guys 
would refer to it by the the name of the case, which is um, Crown and Davidson or R.V. Davidson is how it looks written down. Ask who likes to refer to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Look, no, I I agree. I mean, you read that, you say R.V. Davidson, and apparently that's not right because that's just the way um, the law likes to make things uh, really difficult and annoying. Anyway. I wouldn't know about that. (laughs) Jumping straight in. Um, So this is a a decision of the Supreme Court of Victoria uh, from 1969. The decision was by a Justice Menhonite, as we've as we've said. Um, now, the, the Supreme Court of Victoria is essentially the, the highest court of Victoria. It's, it's not quite the highest. I'll get into that in a minute. But just you know, it, it's where the the most important cases are heard. There are some cases that can only be heard there in the criminal context. Murder and treason automatically have to be heard there. Uh, Parliament decides if something's particularly important, it'll get heard in that court. Uh, if you're suing for money, the higher value the money is suing for, the higher court you go to. So in this case, we're in the we're in the Supreme Court, and this turned basically uh, on whether uh, the accused, Davidson, was guilty of unlawfully using an instrument or other means with intent to procure the miscarriage of a woman, and it turned on whether it was it was unlawful to use an instrument to procure that miscarriage or and whether it was unlawful to procure that miscarriage. What the, what the judge said in the decision is that the use of the word unlawfully implies that in certain circumstances, there is a lawful way to procure a miscarriage. I'm going to stop using that phrase, procure a miscarriage, from now on and just use the word abortion because that's a lot, lot easier for us all. The <laughs> problem was the Crimes Act, uh, which sets out that this is a crime, doesn't actually define what it means for something to be unlawful. So when an act or a law is silent on something or unclear, this is when judges can sort of use certain principles of, of interpretation to determine what actually is meant by that. They do that in a number of ways. In this case, he went back through the acts that predated this one and acts that are similar to it. So he looked at the English Abortion Act of the 60s and then went back all the way back to, I think the earliest act he looked at was was 1803 to determine what it's meant by unlawful to provide an abortion. He didn't get much of an answer there. So the other thing he did is he looked at other decisions of other courts, mostly in Victoria. I think he looked at one in New Zealand and possibly one in South Australia as well, and tried to determine what this word unlawfully means. Um, and when they look at those other decisions, what they tend to do is they'll find a decision that's, that's similar in some way. So perhaps it might not necessarily be abortion. It could just be a case where it, it seems to suggest that there is a lawful and unlawful way to do something, and it's only uh, unlawful if you do it the wrong way. In this case, he found a decision um, and a series of authorities that, that sort of got him to this proposition that it's unlawful by default. However, it can be lawful if you are terminating the pregnancy for the purpose of preserving the life of the mother. And he looked at that in the context of a, the English Infant Life Preservation Act of 1929. So there was another decision of a judge in, in England uh, who was looking at this same issue and said, well, okay, if... Uh, if you need to do it to save the mother's life, then I suppose that's not unlawful and you've committed no crime. The effect of that decision was basically abortion is legal, provided you're doing it to save the life of the mother. Mm. He went back to the, the Crimes Act in, in Victoria and said the position in this state is the equivalent of the English Infant Life Preservation Act. The English Act doesn't use the word unlawfully. However, they still got to this point of saying, well, it's not 
a crime if you're doing it to save someone's life. Yeah. And he says, well, what's lawful and what is unlawful has to be determined by other legal principles. And a well-recognized principle of law is the principle of necessity. Basically, an act which would otherwise be a crime may in some cases be excused if the person accused can show that it was done only in order to avoid consequences which could not otherwise be avoided, and which, if they'd followed, would have inflicted upon him or upon others whom he was bound to protect inevitable and irreparable evil that no more was done than was reasonably necessary for that purpose and that the evil inflicted by it was not disproportionate to the evil avoided. So essentially, this comes down to, is it necessary to perform the abortion to save the person's life? And you tie into that, this is a doctor, presumably, there's a you know, Hippocratic Oath and, and all that sort of thing. And yeah. the court said, well, yes, if it's necessary to save the mother's life, then it can't be unlawful. And this landmark ruling said, uh, well, provided as well, you know, if it's necessary, it's proportionate, it's, you're not going too far with it. I don't want to really get into what that means in this context. In this case, he put that all together and he said at the end, for the use of an instrument with intent to procure a miscarriage to be lawful, the accused must have honestly believed on reasonable grounds that the act done by him was A, necessary to preserve the woman from a serious danger to her life or her physical or mental health, and B, in the circumstances not out of proportion to the danger to be averted. Right. So that, we, we look at that that section of the act and it, it just says, you know, it's a crime to unlawfully perform an abortion. And through a lot of legal analysis and going back quite a long time, that the court has come to the conclusion that, well, yes, except where it's necessary. Basically, the, the crux of, of that decision. Yeah. So I suppose the, the question is, how can you read one thing that just says it's unlawful to perform an abortion and end up with a situation where a judge goes, well, yes, but no. <laughs> and this is why people pay lawyers a lot of money, because we have created a unbearably Byzantine and complicated system for this exact purpose. Yeah. That decision, which is arguably the most important decision on abortion in Australia. Um, yeah, I, but that it needed two doctors to determine whether or not a woman was going to be in danger or at risk in order to procure an abortion. Mm. So even though it was a great step in the right direction, obviously, it wasn't our autonomy. Like, we didn't just have, like, easy access. No. And in 2021, South Australia finally relinquished some of their, like, really restrictive abortion laws and made it more accessible. I think you should say that. It... While that act was changed, I do not think that act has yet actually commenced. Oh. If an act is passed, it needs to be proclaimed by the governor or commenced in a, uh, some other way according with the act. And so that act is passed, but it's not technically law yet. Um, I need oh, to double that's check so if that's still the situation. I know that was the problem with euthanasia is the law was passed ironically by a liberal government and then our, uh, the South Australian Labor government, which just so happens to have to, to be dominated by the most conservative Catholic union in the country, <laughs> has uh, seemed to be taking a slow route to the abortion changes and the uh, euthanasia changes. That's so funny because like historically in America, Democrats and Republicans, around 35 to 33% on both sides supported full access to abortion. So it wasn't a, a wedge issue like in the mm. 70s. So that it kind of doesn't surprise me. I've always found this a very odd thing to become an issue for anyone who is not a woman. And I, I don't quite understand it. Look, even if you go from the position of, oh, every abortion is a tragedy, sure, but it's not your abortion. It's not your decision. It's not your body. It's not your tragedy. Exactly. And, and I don't understand that the legal reasoning for anything other than full, unrestricted access and protected access to abortion for every person with a uterus. Yes. But we are a slow-moving and conservative society generally. Some senses we st seem to be going backwards. The reason this necessity doctrine was permitted abortion in some cases and then has become two doctors have to say it's got to be within a certain amount of time, all these rules, is because a court can only 
create so much law. They're sort of bound to create laws within the confines of existing statutes. So if you think of a, I'm going to use a couple of pyramids. If we're talking about a pyramid of like legal supremacy, at the very top, you've got the constitution. Let's start there. Underneath the constitution, you've got your parliament. Parliament makes the law. Underneath that, you've got uh, your judges who interpret that law. So they can make their own law by interpreting it and reading it, much like this this decision uh, where Justice Menahite went, unlawful doesn't mean illegal all the time. It means it's unlawful unless it's necessary. That's sort of as far as he could go with it. And mm. then what Parliament will do in this situation, if, if a judge makes a decision that they don't like, they will sometimes legislate over it. They'll, they'll create a new act which gets rid of the reasoning that the judge used. And they'll say, okay, no, nah, that's, that's gone. We're making it very, very clear that uh, abortion is unlawful in all circumstances. How very Timeline- utilitarian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know the timeline specifically, but what I understand happened here is after this decision and another decision um, which was adopted in New South Wales called uh, Crown Against Wald, the various parliaments around the country decided, okay, we need to make this very clear. And perhaps at the time it, it was a wedge issue. I mean, we're talking sort of around the time of, of women's liberation movements. You know, I, I defer to you on, on which wave of, of feminism was in place at the time. All the waves of feminism are bullshit, but this would have been second wave. Okay, second wave of feminism, <laughs> there we go. It, it possibly, you know, it was a bit of a wedge issue. They, they didn't want to lose votes over it. So they sort of split the difference and said, to quote the Simpsons, abortions for some, miniature Australian flags for others. And the abortions that you're allowed to have have to be within a certain set of circumstances. They're still basing it on that necessity principle. They're saying you need to have it to prevent harm and the abortion itself has to be proportionate to the harm that's going to be suffered. What they then do is they make an act which says, okay, in order to determine that's 100% the situation, you've got to go to two different doctors, you can't know the doctors, all of these rules. And they're basically enshrining the ruling from Justice Menheit, but also tweaking it a little bit to make it more palatable, I suppose, to the voters that they think will will chuck them out if they create free access to abortion. (laughs) So that's... that's Um, Yeah, our bodies used as political tools. It's a good time yeah yeah i uh i don't envy you there um it's it's pretty horrific and i think a a lot of the the problems that lawyers and and judges have is we we tend to have a very good ability at looking at these things very very objectively and forgetting that at the end of the day every case is two names and those two names are usually at least two people and Mm. all of these things are happening to those people and then in this case the the impact of the decision is going to impact millions of women Mm. um now i want to i want to jump back and, and sort of get into why um we don't have this, a similar situation to what they have in the US with, with Roe v. Wade and uh, the decision that overturned it, Dobbs and Jackson. And, and that's because uh, I mentioned before the Constitution is, is like the top dog. It's all other laws in Australia flow more or less from the Constitution. Our Constitution is like a instruction manual for running the country. It, it says who has what powers. It says what the federal parliament can do. It says what the federal executive can do. It says what the states can't do. And it says what the courts, the federal courts can do. Yep. The US Constitution is uh, similar. In fact, we stole our court clause basically straight out of theirs but theirs also has the bill of rights on the end now victoria has a bill of rights um most other states i don't think any other state in australia has one but the bill of rights is you know a set of legal constitutional protections from certain things that the state or other people cannot do to you because it's enshrined in your constitution it's it's the number one legal document from which all other things flow so for example the right to bear arms which has been misinterpreted horribly is the government can't take away your right to own a gun because it's in the constitution. We don't have anything like that in ours. The closest we have is an implied right to political communication during an election year. <laughs> so freedom of speech technically doesn't exist here. It, it's quite controversial and, and not necessarily, it, it's not an easy thing to, to 
decide upon. I don't have an opinion on whether or not Australia should have a Bill of Rights because if you put the wrong rights in there, like they did in the US in some circumstances, it can be interpreted wildly. You don't know who's going to be interpreting that. Absolutely. Yeah, I would not trust this current government, any actually any government to determine my Bill of Rights. No. Exactly. And and back in many, many years ago, laws, legislation tended to be shorter. And so it tended to just say, you have a right to privacy, bang, that's it. Now, if we were to make a Bill of Rights, it would not say you have a right to privacy. It would say you have a right to and then list Mm. all of the situations in which you don't actually have a right to privacy. And it would be probably interpreted more strictly to give more power to the government. That's sort of the trend of Mm. the authoritarian trend of the law over many, many years. At the same time, though, it is important to protect certain rights. And when you you mentioned before, uh, what can we do to to protect protect abortion rights, safe access to to abortion in this country? Legally speaking, legislation is the is the only tool you've got. But legislation can be changed at the drop of a hat. You can repeal an act, you can amend it, you can do whatever mm. you want with it, provided you've got the numbers in the upper and lower house of your of your state. It's it's why Queensland can change drastically depending on its government because it doesn't have an upper house. Now, don't quote me on that because I'm sure there's a Queensland legal scholar who says no, 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 some acts require two thirds majority, blah blah blah, whatever. But the mm. principle is the same. You can make, chop and change the acts and do whatever you want with them. There are some constitutional limits on the powers of a parliament, but as far as I'm aware, none of them extend to abortion. The states can do more or less whatever they want with access to abortion. Cool. Um, so Australia's legal system uh, is divided into three arms. You've got your legislature, your parliament, executive, which is your government, and then your judiciary, which are your courts. So looking at the the Judiciary. I'm going to look at Victoria specifically because that's where the Mennonite ruling comes from. Each state has a hierarchy of, of courts in it, and there's also a separate federal hierarchy. Um, but they all follow a basic pyramid structure. The individual courts change names. Some procedures are different. There's different cases heard in different ones. But ultimately, all courts across all states and territories in Australia are pretty similar. At the very, very top of your pyramid is the High Court of Australia, right? So this is constitutionally enshrined Federal Court of Australia. It's actually the only constitutionally enshrined Federal Court. All of the others are made by legislation. And the High Court of Australia has an original jurisdiction to hear matters of constitutional interpretation when we can't decide what, what a phrase in the Constitution means. And... It also has an appellate jurisdiction, and it hears appeals from all states and territory courts, usually the highest one, but all of those courts can appeal a matter to to the High Court. If you're unhappy with the decision of the Supreme Court of Victoria, you can go all the way to the High Court until you get the decision you want. Beneath that, in Victoria, you've got the Supreme Court of Victoria Court of Appeal. So that hears appeals of previous decisions. Appeals normally just turn on questions of law. They're not redoing the whole trial. You've got your facts set out from what happened in the trial. And then in the Court of Appeal, you go, yeah, but the judge made the wrong decision because X, Y, and Z. And the Court of Appeal might say, yeah, you're right. Or they might say, no, completely wrong. Off, off you go. Beneath that, you've got the confusingly named just Supreme Court of Victoria. This is where the trials are heard. And that's where you hear cases, you know, as I said, murder and treason, cases of higher monetary value or, or certain levels of, you know, criminality. Sort of the, the next one down is the County Court of Victoria. That's called the District Court in some other states. And that hears cases, usually lower level offending and, and lower monetary judgments. More cases are probably going to be heard there, the Supreme Court of Victoria, particularly more criminal cases because they've got a wider ambit. And underneath that, you've got the Magistrates Court. That's your lowest level. That he is just summary offences, you know, committals, traffic offences, that sort of thing. Uh, they used to do minor civil. I think that's now in VCAT. Most people's experience with court is probably going to be the Magistrates Court. That's, that's your first stop, basically, in anything. Yeah. So precedent is basically the concept that a court makes a decision in one situation they make a judgment which resolves a case. So let's say you have gone off to um, the, we'll go the Supreme Court. You're in the Supreme Court. You're suing someone because they've wronged you and you're trying to get some, some money to, 
fix the things I've done to you. The court says, yep, you're right. You, you win. Here's your money. Other people in similar circumstances to you can then read that case and use that case and go, oh, okay, well, my factual circumstances are the same. I should win this case. And if the case is truly factually identical, then it's really easy just to apply that and say, well, the court sorted it out like this last time. So they should sort it out like this this time. Yeah. That's your basic concept of precedent. Yeah. So what normally happens is you try and distinguish a precedent. And that's when you say, well, hang on, the facts are a little bit different. In this case, it was ABC. In our circumstances, it's actually XYZ. So that case doesn't apply here. And we need to sort it out a little bit differently. And what you do is you, you look around and you try and find cases that have similar bits to you that will help you. And you go, okay, well, in this circumstance, they did this. So we can tick that box. And now we can move to the next circumstance and now look to another case and say, oh, well, they did this. So we should do that. And this is basically what legal argument is. It's finding the precedents that, that support your position. Now, sometimes the facts are just against you, that, that you have done the wrong thing or there is no legal way to help you. And that's just that. Other times, the case is a little bit open, and through some clever argument, you can use a series of unrelated cases to convince a court that your position is the correct one, and, and you should win the case. Now, how you can use a precedent sort of depends on, on the strength of it. So precedents are either binding, which means the court has to follow it, or persuasive, which you know the court can follow it if it fits, and if it's persuaded, that it, that it makes sense. And whether something's binding or persuasive depends on where it sits in the hierarchy. Uh, so as we said, we're in the Supreme Court of Victoria and we've got a decision from the county court, which is below us. But that decision is good. It looks a lot like our situation. So we say to the Supreme Court, you should follow this. They say we're above them in the hierarchy. Doesn't matter what the county court said. Uh, we're smarter than them. We're better than them. We can overrule it if we think it's wrong. However, it's a pretty good precedent. Yeah, that situation looks the same as this one. Can't argue with the case. So yeah, okay, we're going to adopt the county court's reasoning in that other case. Great. You've now won in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's decision in your favor is another precedent. And a few days later, someone has an identical case to you and they bring that in the county court. Um, they're only in the county court because theirs is less money than yours, doesn't need to be in the Supreme Court. And because you won in the Supreme Court, the county court is now bound by their decision. Great for that other person. They've won because of your blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. But say a few days after that, the person you sued in the Supreme Court, they go, no, actually, I'm really mad about this. I didn't, I didn't want to pay them any money. I say the court's wrong. Yeah. So you appeal it. You go to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal looks at the judgment below. Um, and because this time the person you were suing has got a better barrister and the Court of Appeal is full of some wanks who, who disagree with whatever legal principle you've got, they say, wrong, we're overruling it, we're overturning the precedent, and they created a new precedent. Because the Court of Appeal is at the top, that now binds all other courts in Victoria. So you've got a pretty clear precedent. If you're in Victoria and you're in this situation, here's how you resolve it. But you're really pissed off because you've won and now you've lost. And that's really confusing and annoying. So you go, right, I'm going to appeal this. I'm going even further. I'm going to the high court. The high court being the highest court in Australia. You can appeal from the court of appeal in Victoria to the high court. And that's the end. Whatever the high court says, that's the decision. And the high court in this situation, they say, you were right. You should have won. All seven justices agree. They've overruled the court of appeal precedent and they've created a newer, stronger precedent that's binding on every court in Victoria. It might be for the same reason that the Supreme Court said you won originally, or it might be for different reasons, whatever. The high court precedent is now the go-to legal instrument for that situation. And up until the 1980s, you could actually appeal further to the UK. But now the high court can't be overruled by anyone other than itself. And this is where we get into the, the tricky stare decisis, which some Latin scholar is going to tell me I've butchered, but who cares what they think? <laughs> Latin's a dead language. Um, <laughs> Sorry. 
So, stare decisis is just wanky Latin for let the decision stand. Because in our system, uh, we have judge-made law, there's a lot of laws out there made by judges all the time. People are entitled to a consistent legal system that doesn't change wildly all the time. A decision should be given respect and allowed to stand as the law of the land. Precedents are really useful things that save time and resources by discouraging people from litigating issues that have already been resolved. Also, attitudes and facts change over the decades, so there is still the ability to depart from that precedent and overrule it in future cases if a compelling enough case is made. So the advantage of the high court stare decisis is that it's binding on all lower courts from the hierarchy which it came from. So in that situation, we're talking about Victoria. It's also very, very persuasive on all other states. The only way the courts in New South Wales could say, "Mm, no, that doesn't apply here, is the law of Victoria and the law of New South Wales, which created that decision, would have to be completely different. We we say that there's one unified common law in Australia, common law being the the body of judge-made law that, that actually populates most of our legal system. So there's only one bunch of different courts bunch of different court hierarchies, but there's only one common law. It's all united by the high court. When the high court makes a decision on something, that's the matter decided. Yeah. What gets tricky though, is although we have only one common law, we have, you know, a bunch of different Supreme Courts and Courts of Appeal in every different state. So if you didn't appeal your matter in Victoria to the high court and the Court of Appeal decision stood, and then in New South Wales, someone else argued it and New South Wales ended up agreeing with your position, you've got two contradictory precedents. You've got two separate sets of laws for the same circumstances, depending on whether you're in Victoria or New South Wales. All other states can look at either of them and decide which one they want to go with because states aren't bound by each other's precedent. Mm -hmm. It's only persuasive. That's annoying. It is very annoying. Now, imagine that annoyance and multiply it by 10 because in the US they don't have a unified legal system you've got yeah. 50 states and you've got a federal legal system you've all got variously conflicting laws so because of that there's less respect for this doctrine of stare decisis that we have here here where a decision stands it'll usually stand for a long time until something changes so much that they can say no this just isn't the case anymore and the high court will be clever about that and sometimes they'll say no no, no the other case wasn't wrong it's just different now um, but they ask, or other times they'll straight up say, no, that decision was wrong. This is now the situation. The high, previous high court was wrong. We've yeah. got seven new judges on now, so we're going to go a different way with it. Marbo is, is a great example. You know, prior to Marbo, Australia was, was terra nullius, you know, uninhabited. And then the, in Marbo, the high court said, no, it wasn't, which was quite controversial at the time. Well, controversial for a lot of reasons, but legally controversial because it was a, a high court basically saying, no, you, all of you screwed this up for a very long time. We don't know how you did that. But yeah. it takes a long time. It was, what, 1788 to 1992 before the court said that in, in Australia. In the US, because they've got less respect for stare decisis, they can overturn decisions a little bit easier. That being said, five years ago, I said Roe v. Wade wouldn't, well, maybe not five, go back even further 10 years ago i just said roe v wade would never be overturned because it'd been the law of the land since the 70s like it had been the law of the mm-hmm. supreme court there'd been other decisions that had that had considered it and and upheld it and so yeah no one's just going to overturn roe like they're not just going to stack the court with a bunch of right-wing republican nut jobs with very little legal training what are the chances of that happening imagine if you'd been in a coma for 10 years and you woke <laughs> up and you were just like what did you guys do <laughs> who's the president joe biden how? Who was in between? <laughs> Biden actually um was against Roe v. Wade, mm. which is he's a, interesting. He's uh, loves to cosplay as Irish, um, and I think that's why he plays up his Catholicism whenever he gets a chance. Really? Well, yeah, he's you got a whole thing about how his family is Irish, but um, interestingly, you know the 
Ireland legalized abortion. I, I don't know the full extent of rights and protections in, in Ireland, but there was a referendum on it. Yeah, it was huge. It was a in their constitution. Twenty twenty or pre twenty twenty? Uh it was pre twenty twenty. It was twenty eighteen was the was the referendum. Was they repealed the Eighth Amendment, which I'm pretty sure. It, it, it's interesting that, you know, the, the most Catholic country outside of Rome allows abortions and the US doesn't. Well, it's not that it doesn't, but it makes it a hell of a lot harder. It makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, we don't we don't make it particularly easy here either. We don't. No. But because we don't have a a bill of rights, so to step briefly into into Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade was basically decided on on this concept of the right to privacy from the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So in in Roe v. Wade, the the U.S. Supreme Court was asked by um, Roe, uh, whose real name was actually Norma McCorvey, which I'm sure you knew. She was pregnant with her third child. She lived in Dallas County, Texas, where you couldn't get a abortion, and so she sued the district attorney of of Dallas County, Mr. Henry Wade seeking a declaration, which is basically a judgment that doesn't have any money attached to it, it's just the court saying something, that the Texas abortion statutes were unconstitutional and that they couldn't enforce them. She was successful at the, the U.S. District Court. And the U.S. District Court is, is like their, their second court down from the Supreme Court at the federal level. Yep. Um, and then it was appealed and Norma McCorvey and her legal team, Sarah Weddington and, and Linda Coffey, and I'm sure there's dozens of other people who were involved in that who aren't mentioned in the in the headlines, but... They appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with Roe on a on a seven two split, which is quite impressive. So seven judges of the nine said we agree with you, and only two were against it. Other thing I should mention about presidential value: the more judges on one side, the stronger it is. So if you've got a four three mm. split, eh, arguable of you know the other side might end up being right. In like dissents can become law further down the track. Seven two, you would have thought at the time, there's no way they're going to overturn that. That's seven of what are supposed to be nine of the greatest legal minds in the also country. I wouldn't have apparently. thought that they'd put a rapist on the Supreme Court. So well, yeah. that's, that's a very good point. <laughs> but so, yeah, in, in Roe, the, the Supreme Court said uh, there's a, a due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which creates a right to privacy, and that right to privacy creates a right to an abortion because to talk to your, your doctor about whether or not you need this this abortion, which the state can't find out about because you have a right to privacy from the state. It, it was quite clever at the time, reasoning, I suppose, to say the Bill of Rights in the Constitution gives you a right to privacy. And because of that, you can't actively enforce any abortion law because you would need to breach the right of privacy to do it. Yeah, um, not anymore. <laughs> Well, no. No privacy anymore, babies. No, and, and they said quite specifically the 14th Amendment does not include protection of the unborn. However, they also said that this wasn't an unqualified right. They didn't just say everyone has rights to an abortion. They said it's not absolute and it must be balanced against the government's interest in protecting women's health and prenatal life. So to balance those, the court, none of whom are doctors or women, by the way, announced a pregnancy trimester timetable, which governed all abortion regulations in the US. And they also classified the right to an abortion as fundamental, not absolute, but fundamental. And that has a specific legal meaning in, in the US, which means that courts evaluating challenged abortion laws have to apply the strict scrutiny standard, which is the highest level of judicial review. They, they've got to really closely and be really heavily convinced the abortion law stand up. So anything trying to breach Roe would get struck down because it wouldn't meet that standard. Okay. Now, you know, things were going pretty well then until we get to, to Dobbs and, and Jackson. Um, and this is, there'll be an article out there written by some smug Harvard law wank who says that Dobbs and Jackson was always inevitable, not because 
women shouldn't have rights on abortion, but because the basis of Roe v. Wade was so shaky at the time. They overturned Roe on the basis that the Constitution makes no reference to an abortion, and that for a right to not explicitly mention to be protected by the Constitution, that right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Like and right. implicit, Or slavery, like pretty heavily rooted yeah. in your nation's history and tradition, you were built on it. And then implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, and they're saying, no, a right to protection from abortion isn't deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Can't have bodily autonomy. <laughs> been the law for 60 years. Like, that seems to me quite deeply rooted. It's, it's your most immutable decision, your most famous decision for a long time, uh, and now you've just gone, nah. Nah, actually, exploitation of bodily labour is actually more deeply rooted. It's very, very frustrating from all... Frustrating doesn't even begin to describe it. It's infuriating and drives me absolutely insane that these are... This is where we have got to. Look, the legal system is... It's not a tool of justice. It's a tool of power. Everyone appreciates that. However, sometimes it can kind of make things okay. Like Roe v. Wade is is a decision where legal scholars and and the, the women who argued for this have said, it's not written there, but like, we need this. We need this protection. Find a way. Because we can't trust the people in power. We're an oligarchy. We, we can't trust men to, to vote in our favor on this. Protect us. That's yep. your job. And they did. And for 50 years, you know, sure, it, it was just a starting point and should have got better. But, oh, yeah, this is good. This, you know, this liberalism works. And then, no, nah, I'm just going to throw that out the window. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's deeply frustrating. And the last thing I'll say on, on Dobbs and Jackson is they also said that Roe had previously been upheld because of stare decisis and said, you know, well, prior decisions should be followed unless there's a reason for it not to be. And if, you know, you just overturn prior decisions whenever you want, it would undermine respect for the court and the rule of law. But then in this decision, they just say, oh, no, stare decisis is important. It protects the interests of those who've taken action in reliance on a past decision, and it reduces incentives for challenging settled precedents, saving parties in the court's expensive endless litigation. Sure. However, it's not an exorable command, and it's at its weakest when the court interprets the Constitution. Some of the court's most important constitutional decisions have overruled prior precedents. This is nuts to me from, from a, a legal perspective, because you have tried to say stare decisis is important, but then you have also said I'm overturning a precedent from 60 years ago that has been relied upon by more than one other Supreme Court because I don't like it. So yeah. where is you've got no statusizer? You've thrown it out the window. Yeah, like I mean, you're just acknowledging the state of your legal system at last, perhaps. But it's just it, if you were a you know strictly legalistic brain who who believes that you know law is is good and right and everything, the mental backflips you'll have to do to justify this, to justify how your legal system can continue to exist in the wake of this decision, is beyond me. Yeah, well, I mean, that's haven't you just described all the people who supported Trump, particularly women and people of colour who supported Trump, when he, like, added himself constantly as a racist, as ableist, as sexist, as misogynist, as, as a sex offender, and yet they still defended him and supported him? Yeah, no, I, I think you've summed it up perfectly, yeah. It, it's, it's those people who, for whatever reason, vote in their profound anti-interest. So interesting. I, I don't understand it. I no. mean, you know... If voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. But in that case, it seems like... I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what happened there. I want to think it's a blip, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is. No. Fatalistic view of me, mine is that there's a certain size after which human societies don't function and we've reached our size limit. Mm. We, we are too connected and talking too much and then we're falling apart. But that's, that's so 
pessimistic and fatalistic. I, I don't think that's the case. I think there's problems with the way we communicate information. There's problems with the access to information that we have and the interests yeah. that are that are putting it out there. Yeah, the people who control how the information is delivered as well. Mm. The, the monopolies in the media and so forth. And even the monopolies hopefully fall apart and are broken apart. It, it's a feel, to me, it's almost like it's getting more subversive. I'm really interested in discussing the laws that actually make our lives better systemically as opposed to sort of tokenistic laws. So, for example, the safe exclusion zones around mm. abortion clinics. I think, it's, what is it, 100 metres, 150 metres that people protesting abortion have to yell their harassment from outside of that boundary and that's just to the the gate of the abortion clinic so like say if an abortion clinic is in a shopping center or something like that they're allowed within the shopping center but just 100 meters from the door of the of the clinic um so to me that's like a reform that's not actually systemically helpful i do understand that it's helpful for people go entering in and out but like if we're talking broadly systemically that's not going to have any long-term impact on actually shifting where the system stands in regards to open access to abortion i think the safe access zone laws are well-intentioned perhaps but ultimately just another extension of the the state's sort of monopoly on violence yeah in, in a sense that they're saying, you know, as, as you say, it's illegal to harass or assault someone anywhere. The difference is if you do it inside a safe access zone, the standard that someone has to prove that they've been assaulted is lower and probably the, the punishment for doing it is higher. So it it's just means, you know, within that 150, 100 metres of the access to the abortion clinic, you're going to more likely to get in trouble for doing what you're going to do anyway. I, I think the optics of it, of making that law are probably good, maybe, I don't think it's changing anyone's mind. I don't think it's. I don't think it's helping anyone, as you say, systemically. And I don't know that many laws can actually have systemic benefits. One would be full, unrestricted access to an abortion at any point. You know, look, I'm 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 not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a woman, I'm not a mother. I, I don't have a uterus. I can't I can't speak on this with any authority. And perhaps there's a limit somewhere that someone says is appropriate. I don't know. It's not my body. I won't just won't speak on it. But I I think to change the the minds and the system in general, you you need to make it so that the taboo is gone. You need to make it just another medical procedure, like I don't know whatever the most common medical procedure is. And I don't know if there's. <laughs> I, I don't know if there is any legal way to do that. Um, yeah. You Try can... and make it akin to sort of someone with diabetes or something like that. Yeah, make um, it fully protected. I mean, it might be fully protected by Medicare. I'm not sure, but but make it, you know, completely covered. It's not, yeah, it's, it's it's partially covered um, depending on where you go. So there's, well, this is something that I wanted to ask you about as well. There are hospitals that provide abortion. Mm. However, if they're a religious organisation, they're not obligated to provide abortion. Victoria has catchment areas. So if your public hospital is within your catchment area is a religious hospital, you can't go there to get your abortion. You have to go to a private clinic, which can cost $500. Some of it can come back through Medicare, but there will be an out-of-pocket fee. Right. Is this discrimination? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's go see the church. Um <laughs> Look, I, 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 legally, Australia's discrimination, discrimination laws are state by state, apart from a couple of instances, and actually they're, they're concurrent, so there's usually a federal and a state discrimination law covering the same area. It's very hard to pick apart what applies when. Sex discrimination is a big one, but I, I, I can't see any way that that's, that's not discriminatory. You know, you have, uh, sure, only in certain circumstances, but you have a legal right to an abortion. 
So you can go and get one and the hospital should provide it to you. If that's your hospital in your catchment area in which you are legally allowed to go get an abortion, I don't see how they can be allowed to deny it to you. Say, well, the, the tricky thing is where you get into individual doctors. Should individual doctors be able to deny someone an abortion? I think see, ide- ideally... That basis, sure. Yeah, ideally, like that yes. That makes sense to me. That makes ideally, yes. sense that an entire organisation that collects money from the government, taxpayer dollars... Mm will refuse to provide healthcare on the basis of on the basis it, of discrimination. It is. It, it absolutely is. The thing is, any law in Australia that looks good has got so many exemptions to it that it's basically toothless. And I would expect that's probably the case here. Yes, it is discriminatory on the basis of... Well, you could say it's, it's discriminatory on the basis of sex. You can't deny someone a medical procedure on the basis that they have a uterus, but you are. Yeah. There's no other basis for you to, to deny it to them. Really, I mean, you can you can deny a person without a prostate a prostate exam because they don't have one. Fine, but how can you deny someone an abortion and it not be an act of sex discrimination? You are treating them differently from how you would treat everybody else because they have a uterus. So, are we going to sue the government now or the church? <laughs> Who would you sue though? Would you sue the church or would you sue the government? Um, like, sorry, I just like I think I'm, would... I'm an. I, I don't believe in the justice system. I don't I don't think it protects people. I think it protects property and I think it protects the state. Um, right. I agree but with you I am um, all for suing the state. I think <laughs> it would be... Even if it just wastes everyone's time. I, I think care. you sue them both. I think you sue them both. You say, you know, you have a positive duty to provide me with access to an abortion as the state. You know, you have a duty to protect me. And then you also sue the church and you say, you're a bunch of discriminatory fuckwits. Um, yeah. I, I need this service. This is the only safe way I can get it, and you're denying it to me. The principle of necessity, as we talked about earlier, and would require you to give it to me. And provider as well. That's what, I, that's what I can't wrap my head around. You are a healthcare provider. You're, yeah. It's your one look, job. And I say this as, as, as a lawyer. I am required by my ethical obligations, by my job, to regularly interact with and represent and argue for people who I don't like, mm. people whose opinions are different than mine. People who's, and I, I mean, I hate to use that phrase, opinions are different in mind because I sound like a centrist, but like, that's my job. You don't want to debate me in the marketplace of ideas. That's what I do. I do debate people in the marketplace of ideas for a job. And my <laughs> job requires me to take on anyone's case, more or less. I have very little leeway to say no to people. If I was a criminal lawyer, I basically have no leeway to say no to people. Unfortunately, it means I have to represent Catholics sometimes. I'm a lapsed Catholic. I can say it. Oh, sorry, but honey. <laughs> I, I'm not going to turn around and say, no, I'm not representing you because you're religious. Yeah. However, a doctor in the same situation or a medical organization in the same situation can say, I'm not representing you because I'm religious or I'm not providing you that abortion because I'm religious. I don't understand how that works. If society is, is supposed to be about providing things to people in exchange for things that you yourself can't do on a very base level, that's your role in society. You mm-hmm. can't just decide not to. And yeah. if you think you should be able to, then you shouldn't be a fucking doctor. Here, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so jobs for the week, sue the church, <laughs> sue the government, mm-hmm. um, and make abortion less controversial. I think any issue like this, the only tool the law has is an appropriations bill, which gives the government money to spend. And you need to educate people on this. It's a trite answer and it's not what anyone wants to hear, but I don't think the law itself is actually capable of systemic change because it is the system that needs to be changed. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, the, cool. Yeah. All so, right, done. Let's go do that. Revolution at five. I'll see you there. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, so, Madison, are you in? Are you going to join the class action lawsuit against the church and the government? 
Oh, I'm so in. I'm so <laughs> I might be the the weakest link though, because I've really opened myself up to defamation, given that I've got a book coming out about this topic. So I'm so keen. I want to challenge defamation laws in the high court and no one will sue me. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to talk about exclusion zones. Yes. And we, we did touch on it, how they're systemically useless. Yeah. Yeah. At the crux of it, abortion, which should just be an accessible medical procedure is deeply political. Who has resources, who has time, who has the support for aftercare and who has access. Mm -hmm. And I'll reiterate it again until my face turns blue. Access Mm -hmm. to abortion is a human right. The UN consider forced birth to be like a war crime and a crime against humanity. Yeah. And we really need to be discussing it as such. And these Mm -hmm. religious organisations that take our money but won't provide abortion, it's just wildly hypocritical. You take our heathen dollars, you give us our heathen services, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think I know anybody who has acquired an abortion not through a private measure because there's very few opportunities for public health that covers abortion. Yeah, so I had my DNC at the women's. Yeah, when I had the molar pregnancy, but when I had the elected chemical abortion, there's a place on um Vic Parade. Yeah, that's MSI. That's where I went. Oh, is it? I didn't yep. even realize. That were great. I'm doing quite a bit of fundraising at the moment. Your shirt's yeah. in the mail, actually. I've or maybe no, I've got it. I forgot to tell oh, you. Got it. Great. Okay, that's good. I got hundreds of orders, and all of the money is going to MSI. Just a little gentle reminder, if you can't afford an abortion, that's no reason why you can't get one. There is a thing called a choice fund and it's available through MSI and all it requires is for you to quite literally say to them over the phone that you can't afford it and it will be paid for. And we, I we did really, not know this because we did I. around the time of March for Babies when we were doing some actions and things, all I could find was children by choice in Queensland. Yes. Yep. I couldn't Brilliant. find anything in Victoria. So choice is that national or is that just where is national? Um, but it's called the Choice Fund, yeah. and it is run by MSI Australia, which is yeah the largest abortion provider. I'm going to have to fact check the process of acquiring it. Judging from my association with MSI and the research that I've done in that space, and also the money that I've fundraised for them, it is not a matter of having to apply and wait and do all of that. They take this seriously. They believe strongly that women and pregnant people deserve to get an abortion, you know, deserve healthcare, and they are expensive. They're like $600, $600 Australian dollars. Then cool. And I mean, God, this is another tangent, but it's kind of related politically and structurally is that um, organisations like this do the work of the government. Yeah. We we shouldn't have to be fundraising and using our free time, which is supposed to be, you know, you know, our eight hours of leisure, fundraising for this kind of stuff. It should just be provided. It should be given. It should be granted. But we need to do things so that our community is strong and safe and protected. I personally don't see that changing for a while as well. No, like, no, I don't think so either. I mean, you know, you talk about revolution and revolt and all that kind of stuff and tearing things down. We don't have a community yet to, to replace it. We don't. If, if the government crumbled, tonight tomorrow night would be run by pro-lifers yeah honestly anti-vaxxers they're the they're the only ones that are like genuinely organized everything that is sort of coordinated at the moment has an underlying patriarchal value system to it uh even victorian socialists like i know that steve jolly is no longer running or a member or whatever he's not he's no longer associated but the people who supported him are Mm. you can't just point fingers at one person and be like well they're not associated anymore the problem's gone away these people are symptoms of the broader problem there's no centralized feminist organization the only person 
person that you can really point to in politics is probably Lydia Thorpe. Yeah, some people within the Greens that I would I would trust their their feminist views. Janet Rice, I think, is retired now. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and that goes back to the point I was making before. We don't have anyone to vote for. You know, we don't have any representation in government. And part of me is just like, let's start a feminist political party. And then the other part of me is just like, or I could shoot myself in the face. Like, and and I don't know where I'm best sat. Like, am I best sat within the system where I will be hogtied and have to compromise and all of this kind of stuff? Or Mm -hmm. am I best sat running as a candidate who is like a a rogue candidate who's not actually in it to win it, but to just to stir up some noise and like as a protest? Yeah. Am I better outside of the system calling people to account? Mm. Um, I don't don't even know if I care anymore. It can be very demotivating, deliberately demotivating. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps those of us who need it to change tired enough to not for our fists to be mm. a little divided and 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 to not be able to hold them up for long enough it's very yeah. deliberately exploitative and, and i just don't know if i want to use my energy within a system but there is no change in the system the system will eat up any kind of positive change that we try and put in it yeah i think my energy is best used building community and supporting yeah. community yeah the legacy of community is a really strong one yeah. And I think in a world of individualization and yeah, globalization, having that community presence is perhaps more revolutionary than we're yet to even understand. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. So keep doing keep doing it. You're doing keep, it. Keep, let's keep going. Just yeah. keep keep on keeping on. <laughs> having our yells, getting yeah. on the street. I loved that point that you made about abortion access and religious organizations and money. Because yeah. when we think about a government body, we, the, I mean, the whole idea of the public servant per se, there is this false declaration that the government is meant to represent you and support you and you put your money towards a government that has your best interests at heart. Now, the fact that abortion is not considered anything worth investing in or, t- or taking the financial weight off the shoulders is very fucked up. <laughs> yeah. 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 AFAB people experience abortion. It's incredibly common. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all just out here paying for it themselves. Yeah. The financial cost, the emotional cost, the physical cost, it's significant. And you're constantly reminded you've been a you've yeah. been a woman badly. Because, exactly. Yeah, you failed as yeah. a woman because you did not do that one thing that society deems is your sole job. Ever mm-hmm. since Mesopotamia times is to conceive. Yeah, 100%. It all comes back. Yeah, but we say no. <laughs> we say no. Genuinely, changing laws is not going to change anything. And we saw with the interview with Polly that just because we change the law doesn't mean you're going to be given access. 100%. And it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. It's all over. <laughs> that was a nice little rhyme. What we need to do is work within our communities and to support one another, empower each other and, and build our own community. Yeah, preach. Done. Let's just do that. Sue in the government, build our own community, done. And if it's safe to do so, and if you feel you're in a position to do it and you have experienced an abortion, feel free, again, if it's safe to do so, normalise those conversations Mm. because you will... One thing that really did surprise me when I published that first article was the amount of people that started a conversation with me and I've established Mm. lifelong abortion friends through that process and people that I knew and loved that we'd never even discussed it until then. Mm. It's... Abortion lives in the shadows and that's not us doing that. Let's bring it out. That mm. Let's bring it so far out of the shadows that there's no weapons anymore. People can't use yeah. abortion against people. Brené Brown says mm. the antidote to shame is to share. Yeah, 100%. I love Brené Brown. I think she's amazing. Yeah, we, we need to talk about these things. I can almost guarantee you a 1,000% if something's happened to you, if you have experienced something or felt something, someone else would have as well. 
Yes. Like you're not that unique, Cheryl. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're you're spot on. Speak to your mums. The amount of people that I've spoken to whose mums opened up to them about their own abortions when they opened up to their mums was fascinating. I just think that's so beautiful. Yeah. If it's safe to do so, always preface if it's safe to do so. Yeah. Maybe if your dad's Bernie Finn, maybe no. Yeah. Maybe if your dad's (laughs) But also maybe because he's probably paid for a few himself. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, with these people, like, you know, you can't argue on the basis of fact. No. But as Greta Thunberg showed, you can mock the shit out of them and make them a laughing stock and ridicule them because it's all about ego and power or the illusion of power. And if you take that away, the little castle crumbles. Yes. Love that. At the end of the day, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but abortion is more than just the right to an abortion. It's about bodily autonomy and self-determination. I don't know if I mentioned this. No, I'm, I'm no? glad. Is this news? Up now. This is new. <laughs> is this I don't new? know if I mentioned content? it. <laughs> and, yeah, if you are currently experiencing an abortion or experiencing an unwanted pregnancy perhaps, there are so many resources out there as well. But be careful because a lot of forced birth resources have really good marketing teams that mm. pretend to be pregnancy crisis counsellors. They're the ones to look out for. Just be just be a little bit careful in that regard. We'll provide some uh, references and some yeah. links in the show notes for you to go through. 100%. You can feel sad. You can feel mad. You can feel relief. You can feel total euphoria. Fuck it. Feel you whatever can feel you nothing. Want. You can feel nothing. Complete ambivalence. Yes. That's okay. It all happens. It's all good. Cool. All right. Thanks, Madison. Thank you so much, Lee. It was really nice to chat to you. Hey. Yes. I think the last episode we did was like April last year. Wow. So, um, you turned yourself straight back in it. You, yeah. Just you, like, you know, just a, just a small topic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and episodes like it, please feel free to listen to our back catalogue. Our last episode was in April and we spoke with Celeste Little, but we also speak about prison abolition and uh, I can't even remember. There's lots of stuff on there. Anyway, it'll be great. Have a listen. It'll be fun. Um, Our next episode, we'll be talking about the protests in Iran. Cool. That'll be awesome. All right. (laughs) Bye, everyone. I'll just end this recording.